1: Welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex.
2: Good morning, Kathy. How are you?
1: I'm well. How are you doing?
2: Pretty good. Pretty good. That's good. I had a bit of an uh, early morning, but yeah. uh, I'm glad I'm here.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of an early morning too, fighting, fighting the traffic, but that's okay. It's all good. It's a beautiful sunny day, so awesome. Our show today is taped, so unfortunately no opportunity for call But uh, please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our handle is at the RMC. If there are questions unanswered from the show today or you would like to be able to contact our guests, you can email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Also, if you have any show interests that you'd like us to pursue, please feel free to to pass those along. We do our best to try and get uh, the greatest guests and content to you, so never be shy of letting us know what you'd like to hear on the show. Also, all of our shows are flipped over into podcast format. It's called The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, all of your uh, favorite podcast platforms. You can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca, and on my website, kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us a nice comment. So, Alex, I'm going to talk a bit about smoothies. Do you ever partake in smoothies? Uh,
2: I haven't actually started doing that, but that's something that I would like to. You would like to do? I would like to do that for sure.
1: I don't I, do them on a daily basis. I, uh, I'm i really lazy. I, I'm actually I'm quite lazy, but I, I do have them a couple of times a week. But, it's um, just
2: uh, lately I've been... Trying to be a bit more health conscious, so it's just a matter of trying to find the time to to prepare it and
1: And get it going and all that.
2: Exactly, and there are
1: some some actually. I've seen in the grocery store they're now selling uh, smoothie packages, so they've got all of the ingredients. Uh, One one type is in a puck form. Uh So the frozen and all you do is throw them in your blender and you add your your liquid. But you can do that at home on your own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get a Ziploc bag and you just throw all the ingredients you want in there and stick them into the freezer and throw them into your blender and you're done. So there are tricks to the trade. Um, For me, I like smoothies every now and again. I, I like to chew my food. So that's that's one of the drawbacks I have, although I I do recommend them a lot for people, um, especially if, if you're trying to get, you know, your digestive tract back on on par, or you're having some issues, and you want you know something that's very easily digested. I do I do love smoothies, and there are endless endless varieties of things that you can have. I always tell people to uh, have a smoothie journal because they oh, that, will, that really helps carry on. It yeah. will because yeah. you know there are some that will you'll find are delicious, and some that you know may not float your boat. I prefer the ones that are more fruit-based and water-based. Mm-hmm. I don't like the thick, creamy ones. Okay. And um, that's that's my that's my personal preference. But uh, yeah, so so keeping a journal of the different ingredients. But it really is a kitchen sink of throwing in just some amazing, amazing ingredients. And it really is great to start your morning off that way. Yes, so
2: especially when you've figured out the flavors that you really enjoy. Uh, yes. And that way you're able to look forward to... Uh, drinking your smoothie, yeah. and then it's not so much of a—it's not a chore. chore at that point, a right? A lot
1: of this stuff is habit, and you yeah. know, it, yeah, I always say that I, I profess things, and I really have to do a lot of them. I do, I do eat well, and I do incorporate a lot of things. But smoothies are one thing that I would really like, and you don't just have to have them for breakfast. Well, that's I mean, you true. can have yeah. them throughout the day, so it's, it's not a big And it thing. helps
2: when you've got a busy schedule in the middle of the day if you need something quick.
1: It really does. Yeah. It really does. I have a great protein powder that I like just the, the flavor of, so I use that, and sometimes I'll make it into a smoothie, but a lot of times I just use the protein powder and then either coconut milk or uh, coconut water, I mean, or regular water. But uh, a common mistake that I see with people is loading up your blender. So I wanted to go over with everybody... The proper order that you should uh, load your blender, because if you load it incorrectly, um, the, the the blade may have some issues with actually blending things well. And um, you'll find that you're, you're shaking the blender, poking it and trying to get things moving. So, you know, once you've locked and loaded your, your blender with everything um you want, you want this just to hit the button and go and, and a smooth entrance into into smoothie land. But there is a way to do it. So basically what you're doing is you're going from soft to hard. So you're putting in your liquids first, your, your yogurts, uh, whatever, if you're doing an almond milk or regular water. You put that in first. And then on top of that, you're going to add your small frozen fruits like your berries, your strawberries, your blueberries, Um, uh, strawberries would definitely be cut up and this is this is what make would make them small if you're adding uh, whole strawberries and you're not going to cut them up they would go third so the big guns sort of go it goes the water the liquid uh, the small and then the big and then on top of that you're going to add your ice and that just allows it to blend nicely and you get that nice suction in of the the blade and everything blends smoothly and you're not you're not stopping and poking and moving things around, so it, uh, you know, you're trying to get out the door. You've you've done all your stuff to get your great smoothie on the go. So load it properly, and life will be really simple for you. And just a few things that you can add to your smoothie, as well as your fruits and your liquids, and your, you know, your spinach or kale or whatever. You're doing, you know, throw in some nuts. You can throw in some almond butter. You can throw in chia seed, hemp seed. All of these things are just taking your nutrition to to the next level. So just uh, a quick thing to to you know start your start your day off with, or you can use it as a snack, whatever as a meal replacement. But uh, just thought I'd let you know about that. I do see people frustrated come into me and saying my blender doesn't work, and sometimes it's not the blender. It's
2: the it's process of how you do it. The way you yeah. load it. So Exactly. Yeah. You
1: don't necessarily need to go buy uh, the top of the line blender. Just loading it properly may solve a lot of your problems. So there you go. Oh,
2: well, thanks, Kathy.
1: Hit the go button and you'll be happy. Just put
2: the lid on top. Just put make the sure. lid on
1: top. Put the, <laughs> I have done that once. You know, I, was, I have done that once. But anyway, put the lid on top, hit go, and, and your smoothie will, will turn out great. So on to our show today. This is... Um, This is something that's of of real interest to me, and it it came, you know, the idea for the show actually came from a previous uh, show that we had uh, with saunas and detoxification, and the topic of preconception care came up in that uh, podcast, and I thought, what a great topic uh it's not something that i ever really actively pursued when i had my children i don't even know if it was a thing um you know 28 years ago but it certainly is now and our guest today is dr rebecca jenis and she was born and raised in burlington ontario so she's a homegrown talent she attended mcmaster university obtaining her bachelor of health sciences she went on to attend the michael de school of medicine and obtained and obtained her medical degree and during this three-year program, she was a medical co- at a medical conference and heard a physician speak of his practice on environmental medicine. She became fascinated with the new scientific information being translated into clinical practice to target the root causes of disease. Dr. Janis found that she enjoyed caring for women throughout their reproductive years while continuing to be fascinated by the field of environmental medicine. Given the rising rates of numerous childhood illnesses, Dr. Jenis decided to begin her work in preconception care helping women to prepare their bodies for pregnancy and to help women have healthy happy pregnancies and prevent adverse health outcomes in children. Dr. Rebecca Jenis has written for several medical journals on topics ranging from preconception care, nutrition, and environmental health to medical ethics. She is a mother of three children and having seen the benefits of healthy living in her children she is passionate about educating women to make healthy choices for themselves and their families. Dr. Janis currently lives in Alberta, Canada, and raising her family there. Our learning points today will be: What is preconception care? Why is preconception care important? And is preconception health important for men as well as women? We'll be back after a few minutes.
3: Baby, blue
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Our show is taped today, so no opportunity to call in. But feel free again to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Health Hub RMC. So welcome to the show, Dr. Janice. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us. I know uh, the time difference makes this a little bit early for you, so we really do appreciate (laughs) your time and having young children. I know that uh, sleep can be a bit of an issue, but we do appreciate having you here.
4: Absolutely. I think it's such an important um, cause, so I'm glad that that you're speaking about it with your your listeners today.
1: Well, it really is. And uh, like I said, when I was having my children, I had four children. uh, There was really Mm -hmm. no sort of field of preconception care that I knew about. But um, it, it, it is important. How long have you been practicing in this area?
5: Um, well, I started sort
4: of thinking about it and receiving training for it when I was a medical resident, which was sort of five to seven years ago. And then since I graduated, it's pretty much exclusively what I've done. So that's been for the last four and a half years.
1: And do you, you know, you had this uh, passion for environmental medicine and now are these two separate entities or do you find that they are very much uh, integrated in your practice?
4: Absolutely. So environmental medicine, sometimes people call it functional medicine. They're, they're quite similar, but it, it's just applying principles about underlying causes of disease to, uh, to the treatment of it. And so what, what I seek to do in preconception care is to actually apply those principles before illness has developed in order to prevent it. So it, it very much is an application of that kind of medicine to, to health care, but more in a preventative measure.
1: So being in preconception care is sort of new frontier. Environmental medicine is, si- is sort of a new frontier and being a medical doctor and applying both of these things really puts you in uh, a category that is unique amongst your peers, I would imagine.
4: It, yeah, you know, it, it's a fun place to be. It's exciting. It's um, it's challenging at times because I find I spend so much time just sort of pouring over new papers as they come out. and. As I'm sure you know, the rate is um is staggering at times, especially about some of this stuff. So it's um it's challenging. I can't just sit down and read a textbook about it, but but it's fascinating and it certainly keeps me interested in in the work that I do.
1: And having young kids, I'm sure that that also is impetus for for being on top of this. You're at the perfect age to be educating people on this topic.
4: Absolutely, and I mean the um the importance of it, of course, with my kids then makes it that much more important mm-hmm. for me to sort of know and understand and. Put this stuff into practice. So it's 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 a privilege to be able to share it with patients too, and help them and their family.
1: That's great. Now, you know, for for somebody who is thinking of having children, or for someone like me who just doesn't really know exactly what you're talking about, maybe you could give us uh, you know a, a, a deeper dive into what exactly preconception care is. Sure, um, preconception care, is sort of by definition,
4: is the care of women and their partners. In the period of time prior to conception so before they've actually conceived a child and its goal is to maximize the health of both partners before they conceive so that they'll then optimize mom's health throughout her pregnancy and the health of her child.
1: So are you working with both partners at the same time or are you focusing more on women? Right. Um, In an ideal world, I would see
4: both partners at every appointment. Um, Often that makes things a bit less practical for couples because I do see them quite often for the period of time I see them. So um, I generally try and see both partners at least once. And then provided there's no major issues uh, with the male partner, then, then normally it's the women who are coming back and forth for appointments the rest of the time. And, you know, it kind of works because so many of the changes that I will suggest or the things that we'll do um, will actually end up being implemented across the family, right? So if we're talking about dietary changes, well, mom generally isn't going to start just cooking healthier meals for herself. She's going to prepare them for both people. If we're talking about supplements, some of them will generalize. If we're talking about air quality, again, things that that affecting one person often will affect the whole family. So it's worked pretty well that way so far. And just from a practical point of view, I'm finding it's it's the easiest way to do it.
1: Why now is this such an important topic? Is it different? Have times changed? Is it just more knowledge coming out? Or do you find that there is, at this point in history, a real need for people to understand the value of preconception care?
4: Yeah, so that's um, a really important question, um, because, you know, you talked about when you were having children, and, and even before that, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, I'm not sure that preconception care was as necessary as it is today. Um, but but there are things about the day and age that we now find ourselves in that I think make it critical. Here's what's been happening. Over the last few decades, in many respects, we've been seeing our children getting sicker and sicker. Now, sure, if we look at measures like infant mortality, you see that, yeah, we've made incredible advances, and that's huge and something that that we can and should celebrate. But when we start to look at the incidence of things like, um, you know, birth defects in infants, things like developmental delays, allergies, asthma, ADHD, autism, some forms of cancer, um, and so on and so forth, um, in this area and in many, many subsects, um, the the rates of of these things are rising and, and sometimes at a staggering rate. But, you know, for a long time, we just didn't know what was going on. So even if we we saw rates were going up, there wasn't much we could do. If patients asked their doctor why their child developed a food allergy, for instance, um, and a food allergy that also had never been in that patient's family tree. So it wasn't genetic. Um, but if a child developed that previously and they asked her, doctor, why did this happen? How do I prevent my future children from developing food allergies? The honest answer was just that we didn't know. So, um, you know, avoid the food and, and best of luck. But um, fortunately, over the last 10, 20 years, really a lot of research has been coming out that's starting to illuminate the etiology, the underlying cause of, of many of these problems and so you know the research it isn't always perfect we don't always have double-blind randomized control trials but as it continues to be done and to publish and publish and really accumulate it's starting to become quite clear that there are some things that couples can do that will maximize their chances of having a healthy pregnancy and a healthy child so yeah i mean i guess to summarize the reason why why it's important right now is because we have rising rates of illness and also we know about some things that, that people can do to really decrease the chance that their child will have one of those concerns.
1: So is this a focus on, uh, I guess it's a dual focus on mom's health and baby's health? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you know, many of us, just from our experience being pregnant,
4: knowing pregnant women, will know that there's there's such a spectrum in terms of how a woman's pregnancy will be. Um, you know, there's there's some women who really just enjoy being pregnant, and, and fortunately for me, that that's pretty true. I I love being pregnant, and I, you know, I I've never personally gotten to the point of feeling like I'm done. I just I can't go on. I want this baby out, but. But that's not the case for, for everyone. And certainly I have had my moments in my pregnancies too. But but there's some people who just pregnancy is actually their biggest barrier to, to having children. And maybe they have one child and maybe they have two. Maybe they would actually like more children. But they tell me, you know, if I could just skip those nine months of pregnancy and have the infant, I would be delighted. But, but for some people, pregnancy itself is, is such a challenge. And then we have things like, you know, gestational diabetes that are... That's happening, um, and that women have to deal with throughout pregnancy. Rates of preterm labor in Edmonton are actually increasing—not not dramatically, but they're not going down. Um, so, so things like that that are um, making pregnancy unpleasant for women and challenging, and sometimes scary. Um, postpartum depression, all of these things. So, so yeah, absolutely. Preconception care is certainly about the child that um, will be born at the end of the pregnancy, but it's also about um, allowing women to to enjoy their pregnancy, to feel better throughout their pregnancy, and and to be to be honest, often those two things are correlated.
1: I was just going to ask you: Is there a strong uh, evidence based correlation between a woman who is very healthy during their pregnancy and the health of the baby? Because I I know some women who just it was t- you know sickness, not just uh, you know the first trimester, but throughout. And and again, you're talking about the gestational diabetes, so. Is there evidence that a healthier pregnancy uh, by mom an easier pregnancy leads to an overall healthier baby?
4: Yeah, so um it's a great question. It's one that I have Thoughts about, but, but science matters more than my thoughts. So um, when we talk about things like gestational di- diabetes, yeah, we know that that can affect the, the health of the child. It can make for more complicated delivery, and there can be consequences of those things. Um, I haven't seen science about um, things like nausea, vomiting, just general indicators of, of wellness throughout pregnancy and the offspring of children. So I think it would be a, a fascinating thing to, to look more into.
1: I guess with such a new area, the statistical accumulations are are smaller. You don't have a lot of long term evidence right now, absolutely okay now, do couples come to it it sort of begs the question to me now, preconception care would you also be dealing with uh infertility and and actually working with a couple to become pregnant?
4: yeah, so um it's, it's really interesting. I, I'm always curious to know how patients come to me, how they found me, but also why they came, because there isn't necessarily this great feeling in, in society today that before you get pregnant, you should receive preconception care. Um, and so the way the medical, you know, world generally treats this is if a woman has some kind of chronic disease, she'll be seen by a specialist before she can see. If a woman is on a bunch of different pharmaceuticals, she'll be seen uh, to try and optimize those medications so that it's safest for babies throughout pregnancy. So, um, And then certainly couples who are struggling with fertility um, are, are also seen, but it, it tends to be the people who have problems that are often seen by, by just the general medical establishment um, in pregnancy. And to your question about does this help women with infertility, you know, I, I'm very grateful to have seen and worked with couples who had been trying sometimes for years unsuccessfully to conceive. And um, to their credit, like, worked very hard at implementing many of the things that we've talked about. And then were successful in, in conceiving and in giving birth to, to children that were, that were very healthy. Um, you know, one in six to one in seven couples, young couples today, are being diagnosed with unexplained fertility. People who, you know, started trying to have children expecting they would have no problems at all. And then after a year of trying, just uh, have been unsuccessful and often much longer than that. And it, it can be a real challenge for couples um, because, again, they're given this this label of unexplained infertility. There's no reason given, so they often aren't told what to do. Interestingly, I have um, uh, an acquaintance who, who was given that diagnosis. And when she went to a fertility clinic and asked, you know, what, what caused this? She was told, oh, it's all those chemicals. But then the flip side of that was, it's all those chemicals. Would you like to try IVS? And, you know, it was, it was interesting because my approach is often it is all those chemicals, but let's try and deal with those chemicals and see if we can get your body working properly in order to allow you to have one or as many children as you'd like and also actually to improve your health. So, um, so absolutely, it applies to infertility. Over the last few years, I've, I've been really grateful to have worked with lots of women with PCOS um, women who again often have, have lower rates of fertility, struggle conceiving, uh, or struggle to conceive, but but also who um, who struggle with with a, a wide variety of symptoms. And you know, some of the women I've seen, they're some of the hardest working uh, patients I have. They've been trying so hard to get their symptoms under control. They've been trying all kinds of diets because weight gain is often associated with PCOS. They've been trying exercising and, and putting in all this effort and sometimes just seeing no results at all. So they come in frustrated because they want to do the work, but they just haven't been successful in doing sort of the traditional, um, you know, the traditional ways of doing things. And um, they've been a really fun group of people to work with because, again, if they're willing to, to put in the work, um, we often see great um, advances in terms of resolving their symptoms, regulating their cycle without them having to be on the pill or anything. And, um and and then uh, the ability to go on and conceive. So um, yeah, the long answer to your question, but um, but absolutely, there's 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 an important space for this kind of work to be done with couples who are struggling with infertility because frankly, sometimes the other options that they're offered just aren't palatable to them, and so this is one that that most people can can get behind.
1: Well, and and herein lies the beauty of what you do. And again, back to something that listeners of the show here all the time is root cause. If there's if, if there's an issue, there's a cause. And if you can get to it by doing things that are natural, more holistic, working within yourself, as opposed to going straight away to IVF or things like that, why not? And yeah. I think it's so important and, and that's why you're given the space of the show to to tell people that, you know, there at least is this option and give it a shot because If it works once, it may work, you know, throughout the rest of your of your uh, of your life, you know, that span of time that you want to have children. So uh, very important. And when we get back from our break, what I want to start talking about, Dr. Janice, is really the brass tacks of, of how you go about educating and what is involved in a protocol of preconception. So we will be back in a few minutes.
3: My sweet
1: Welcome back, everybody. Today our show is taped, so no opportunity to call in. We are talking with Dr. Janice about preconception care, a really fascinating area of, of uh, study. And what I'd like to do, Dr. Janice, is start, um, start off the second part by doing sort of a, a, a grand walkthrough of what, uh, what you feel is an ideal protocol for preconception care, maybe starting off with when should women, young women, Teenagers, perhaps, start the thought process of taking care of themselves with the view on having a family. Sure, sure. Um, you know, from from my point of
4: view, the earlier the better. Um, I'll sort of say when I think about preconception care, it broadly is is broken down into two areas. One is nutritional sufficiency. So ensuring that mom has an optimized nutritional status, not just for herself, but so that she has, in a sense, extra to be able to give to the developing fetus throughout pregnancy. So nutritional sufficiency is one area we pay a lot of attention to. Um, And then chemical avoidance and sometimes elimination is the second area we pay a lot of of attention to. So um, the chemical avoidance part is, is the piece that, you know, the earlier people are thinking about this, the easier it will be for them. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about unexplained infertility and, and all the chemicals as, as a broad explanation of what's going on. And the problem is that some chemicals that we're exposed to will persist in our bodies. They're called persistent toxicants. And it just means that once they're in, they don't really have a very good way of getting out. And so if we have no idea about these things and we're just exposed throughout our life and not really paying attention, you know, we hear this and hear that, but think, well, I feel okay. It's not really relevant. So we, we continue on. And then suddenly, you know, in the Few months before we have a baby, we think, "Oh, I got to get rid of all these chemicals because they can pass on to my child." Um, it's a much tougher slug than than someone who's been aware of that most of their life and and doesn't have nearly the same sort of chemical body burden as as someone who doesn't know. So, so from that point of view, the earlier people are aware of these things, the better. And and to be frank, again, this is going to lead to them having uh, better health personally um, in their teenage years as well as um, in their late later years too um, so the, the earlier the better um, but you know again practically or, or what's the time frame I normally see people in um, my ideal is to see people a year before they conceive now not everyone again is thinking that far out or planning that far out sometimes people come and you know especially a uh, couple struggling with infertility they come and they want to conceive tomorrow and and we work with that um, but But it varies. Six months, I find that is sometimes it's within that period of time that people start thinking, sort of a six-month time frame. And six months gives me a lot of time. A year gives us a bit more time to really make some of the changes, intervene a little bit if we need to, which I'm more cautious about if it's closer to the time of conception. But. Um, yeah, so I really like a year to work with couples before they conceive, but I've had people who said like, you know, I'm getting married in, in six months or eight months and, and we don't have immediate plans to conceive, but, but maybe we're just going to be open to it. So, so they come before they're, they're even trying in any meaningful sense. Um, sometimes they actually, and uh, it's funny, but um, sometimes these couples are, are helpful because they're putting together a wedding registry. And so being able to help them sort of craft the, the home environment, the kinds of things they're going to use in their kitchen and in their bedrooms and so on and so forth can actually also be a, a good place for for eliminating exposures and things. So there, there's never anyone who has come too early. Um, and certainly there have been people who have thought, oh, I wish that, you know we could delay things a bit longer so we could do a little bit more um, and then I've seen outcomes and thought, yeah, this person really could have could have used a bit more intervention, but um but but I work with anyone wherever they are, and and we kind of go from there. I have some patients who say, you know, this is what we're thinking, but what do you think? And what do you think would be sort of the best time frame for us? And then we kind of work that way. Obviously, I'm not in the business of telling couples when to have children, but but always happy to sort of provide medical advice in that regard.
1: That was a very interesting thing you said about you know the bridal registries and and creating a, a healthy home environment. That's a that's a an interesting angle. Very interesting. Yes. I just, I yeah. just so hope this is getting, uh, out to the right ears because it's so, so very important. Now, are you talking, uh, detoxification? That's something that you don't often hear from a medical doctor. So is detoxification something, um, that you take people through the process of? And and if so, what is your detoxification protocol?
4: Right. Um, you know I think the word detoxification has come to mean a million things and and those things range on the spectrum from completely ridiculous to very scientific um so sometimes I wish I could just give what I did a, a different name because I, I I certainly um make every effort to ensure that that the stuff that I'm putting forth to patients that I'm suggesting to patients um is only things that we have we have solid scientific evidence for doing um that being said absolutely um like there's no question that chemicals are being transferred from mom to baby throughout pregnancy we live in a world that's full of chemicals in um a few years ago the environmental working group did what are called cord blood studies so when a newborn baby was born they took They sampled blood from the baby's umbilical cord, so the baby hadn't even breathed really the hospital air. They'd had nothing put on their skin, they hadn't breastfed nothing. They had just been in the womb, they'd just been delivered, and they sampled the blood that came from their umbilical cord and And in the ten infants that were sampled, there were two hundred and eighty seven chemicals found. So, like, that's not a small number of chemicals. And, and they're not inert chemicals. Of them, um, many of them were known, uh, or at least as strongly associated with things like cancer, or things like brain and, and nervous system toxicity, or different birth defects, or, um, or reproductive defects. So, um, you know, this led to, there was one sort of um, commentator who was writing about this article who said, our, our children are being born pre-polluted, and... Um, Based on, again, the science, I think that's in some ways a fair statement. So is detoxification necessary? Um, Yeah, I think it is. And and there's many approaches that that people will take to this. Um, There's some general detoxification measures that that I do think it makes sense for couples to engage in and that I'll talk with them about. Um, But again, I I sort of mentioned this earlier, I I won't do anything if they're planning to conceive just any time. Or if they say I'm planning to even in the next two or three months, then I will suggest that they avoid detox of all sorts. This is the reason. Um, in those three months before conception, that's when new sperm are growing and developing. That will be the ones released three months later, um, and so that may be the sperm that will con- that will fertilize the egg that will go on to create the child. And so, um, so in that. Time frame, I won't suggest that people do anything that involves detox because often anything that involves detoxification will actually mobilize chemicals that sometimes have been stored away. And so, if you're flooding your bloodstream with chemicals during a time frame when you sperm are formed, you can actually affect uh you know it's it's very plausible that you will affect the health of that sperm. So if I have longer than that if patients see me six months or nine months before they plan to conceive, then we'll talk about some general detoxification um, methods so um some of them and the thing about general ones that are nice is that they're there there really isn't harm to them and and they're broad spectrum so they will help to eliminate all kinds of things from a person's body. So so some of those things, I mean exercise is is really important for detoxification. You know, we often think of it in terms of cardiovascular health, which absolutely. Um but but there's other things that happen when you exercise. One of them, there's a researcher who who looked at um the contents of a person's breath when they were exercising versus when they were at rest. And it was found that when they're exercising, they're actually exhaling um, some, some toxicants, some different chemicals that have accumulated in their body, that they're not exhaling when they're at rest. So so just getting your respiratory rate up is actually helping you to detoxify and things. Sweating, we know, um, is a very uh, broad spectrum way to, to dump chemicals. There's been um, very credible papers published showing that, that numerous things come out when a person sweats. Heavy metals, different different kinds of chemicals will will pour out of a person's body. Well, some of them trickle out, some of them pour out. It, it depends on on the chemical, but um, but they'll come out when a person sweats too. So, um, so some people will use saunas, some people will uh, you know use hot baths, some people do hot yoga, whatever it is to just get their body sweating um, can be can be a, uh, an effective way of detoxifying as well, or, or lowering a, a person's body burden of chemicals. Um, certain supplements can be used to support the body's natural detoxification mechanism. So um, we'll talk about that. And then, uh, and then, but often the detox, if there's anything beyond that that we're doing, it really depends on the, the person in front of me and the kinds of exposures um, and levels that they've had uh, had in the past.
1: So, is there an ideal diet that you would have? Like is there a detox diet or do you just hit diet in a general sense? What do you recommend as far as nutrition or preconception yeah. care?
4: Um uh, you know as well as I do that that the world of uh, or the the number of perfect diets that are being advocated today is is endless. There's um it can be a hard world for people to navigate trying to figure out what is um What's the healthiest way to eat? Um, sometimes, again, this will be quite customized to the person in front of me, but but the general um, guidelines, if you will, that I give my patients is just to eat a, a traditional whole foods-based diet diet. Um, you know, there's been there's been a lot of changes recently in the way farming's done. Our soil is like it, when it's analyzed now compared to soil that was analyzed in the 60s and 70s. We see that there's been clear declines in the level of different nutrients that we find in the soil. And if it's not in the soil, it's not in the food. So we're seeing nutritional deficiencies accumulate because of of changes and shifts in farming practices. So, um, you know. Uh, I encourage patients to eat as much as they can just in terms of whole foods, things that came from the earth and not from the factory. Um, often I talk to patients about doing a Whole30, which is sort of this new trendy diet, if you will, that, that's out. Um, it's 30 days of eating pretty much only whole foods, eliminating the large majority of foods that, that some people will find that they are intolerant to. And um, I like it because it's so popular right now. There's really a lot of resources. There's a lot of online support. There's people who will provide, you know, meal plans for the 30 days and grocery lists and all of that. So, um, and the other thing is that I just find that most people, if they say, okay, I only have to do this for 30 days, um, they can get through almost anything. And and then, you know, I I tell them from the beginning, this this isn't just a 30 day thing. It's just a way to sort of get you into in, into eating more whole foods, a higher nutrient density in the foods, and things like that to try and make up for. Um, sometimes what are presumed nutritional deficiencies, but sometimes things that we can demonstrate. But but certainly there have been population-wide studies looking at you know what's the average person's intake of magnesium, and and the majority of people aren't aren't meeting what sort of recommended dietary intake uh, suggestions would be. Um, there's been population-wide studies of things like vitamin D in Alberta, but this obviously applies to much of Canada. A lot of people are deficient there. So so uh, you know working with with all kinds of things, but dietary based to um, to try and ensure nutritional sufficiency, I think, is really important. Um, And I do encourage patients in the time prior to pregnancy and throughout their pregnancy, and as much as they can, to to eat foods that are free of pesticides, whether whether that's from their own garden, whether it's from a local farmer that they've gotten to know, and whether it's certified organic stuff. Um, We know that pesticide levels in a person's body will change based on, the amount of pesticides on the foods that they're consuming. There have been really interesting children studies looking at, and that, um, that seem easily extractable to to adults. Um, and then the associations between pesticide exposure and and health outcomes in children are, are the evidence is really adding up right now to a point where I think that as much as pesticide avoidance is possible, um, it's something that. That people uh, should strive from. So I um, I point them to things like the Environmental Working Group's Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen as sometimes a starting point. Um, I encourage them actually to start with animal products when they're going organic um, as a first step because that's where the potential for contamination and accumulation is, is perhaps the highest. Um, so so all of those things I I think are an important part of diet. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll just say quickly um, on that front is I've been talking more and more with patients about preparing. Um, properly fermented, so anaerobically fermented foods, because I think our, our microbiome, our germ environment, is, is so important to take care of and to tend to. And more and more research that really, to me, is fascinating is coming out about the importance of the germ environment um, for, for having a healthy pregnancy and having healthy children.
1: And just to be clear, we did not speak about you saying this before the show, right? Because this is something that I preach all the time. So, you know, oh. is they're going to say, oh, she prepped her for that. But no, not at all. This is no. totally no, your no. own your own uh, thought process. And it's amazing. Now, to that, uh, what I want to get to just before we, we have to start closing out the show, um, mm. more and more scheduling of deliveries uh, to work into people's busy lives and mm. what is missing very what is missing and what i would like you to cover or if you find it's an issue at all when someone um when a baby is delivered from c-section versus a vaginal delivery what what uh what is missing when the baby is is taken um from mom that way
4: yeah um, so, I mean, obviously, this, this connects perfectly to to stuff to you know my comments on the microbiome. Um, for a long time, I, I don't think we knew what, what's the difference in a child that's born vaginally versus through a cesarean section. But, but again, recent research techniques and, and also just greater awareness of the importance of germs um, has has led to the recognition that that the journey that an infant normally takes down the vaginal canal. Is in a sense the seeding of their GI tract because they are swallowing all kinds of mum's germs as they come down, and those germs and begin colonizing their GI tract, which before that point is probably sterile. There's some some interesting new stuff saying maybe there's some exposure beforehand, um, but at least up until now we've we've thought was sterile, and uh, certainly even if it's not, this is a huge contributor in terms of forming. The germs that will colonize their gut, and, and it's really interesting. If you um, if you look at the germ environment uh, of an infant who's you know a couple months out from being born, three, six months out, you can actually look at their germ environment and, and predict with almost with very high accuracy, I should say, um, how they were delivered, whether they were delivered vaginally or, or through, the, through their infection. Um, because those that are born vaginally will have a germ environment more similar um, to the germs that they were exposed to in the vaginal canal, which has been thought to be um, the, the healthier, um, the healthier types of germs to have um, to promote lifelong health versus a, an infant born through cesarean section um, will have more sort of skin types of germs because that's what they would have been exposed to first. Um, And and to that point, there's some really interesting research being done. There's a study that's underway right now. It just started um, in July of this year, so it'll be a few years before we have results. But they've enrolled 800 participants. Um, There were smaller studies done originally, and it just wasn't enough to reach any meaningful conclusions. So this is the the larger scale one. 800 women um, who um, are going to have a C-section, so planned for some reason. And what they'll do, I think, with half of the group um, is they're going to take sterile saline-soaked gauze and they'll place it in the vagina of the mother um, before she delivers. And then quickly after the child is born, that piece of gauze will be wiped all over the baby, on their skin and their mouth and their hands and their feet. And, you know, it sounds a bit strange when you say it, but, but the goal is just to mimic that journey down the birth canal that they otherwise will have missed. And so... Um, so it will be really interesting to see what that does. Again, in the smaller, smaller scale study, and it really was like four or five women that this was done on. But they did find that there are meaningful changes in the infant's microbiome, um, and that was I think a month or two after after delivery. So um, we have encouraging early results that this could make a big difference. Because I mean, obviously, C-sections sometimes are necessary. It's not something that can always be avoided, and so. The question is, can you can you replicate the, the journey down the, the birth canal that otherwise infants would have in order to try and stave off some of, of the side effects that are associated with not having that journey? Just quickly, the the American Academy of Pediatrics a couple of years ago released a paper um, that was really warning uh, doctors about this sort of climbing rate of C-sections because it's been associated with uh, the risk of all kinds of chronic immune disorders, um, things like asthma, juvenile arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, leukemia, and so on. So um, with these sections being one, one in three or one in four pregnancies, uh, the, the endpoint of them these days is something that, that the medical community is starting to pay more attention to, to how we can eliminate that fascinating or, or information. Decrease it, not only.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. Fa- it really is fascinating and again we always hearken back to the body and its natural processes and even though we may not understand everything there is a reason that our bodies are geared to doing things the way they are and uh, of course there are some s- situations where C-sections I had one one of my four children mm. uh, was C-section so it's not it's not a, a shot against mums it's just more information mm. to help you if that situation arises. So we're pushing right up against the end of the show. And I want you to, if possible, give a couple of tips for people who may be, you know, thinking about this now. Um, And before we do, I just want to give your website. It's preconceptioncare.ca if you would like to uh, learn more about Dr. Rebecca Jenis. Um, So let's end off the show with maybe a couple of tips that you think are very important. Sure.
4: Um. So perhaps just if we talk about those two areas, the first one would be um, nutritional status. Uh, maximizing nutritional status is, is so important. Um, uh, nutrients, uh, whether minerals, vitamins, um, trace elements—all of these things—they're the building blocks for for our children's health and um, for, and for their body development, their brain development, and everything in the womb. So, um, so really doing doing your best, uh, both the, the husband and the wife, to maximize nutritional status, um, primarily through through whole foods, pesticide-free foods. Um, I think it just it can't be underscored. Um, taking a clean prenatal vitamin and folate, I think, are both important, and the research certainly suggests um, and backs that up. Um, and then the second thing would be chemical avoidance. These things are found in, uh, sometimes, again, on the food we eat. They're found in the products we use. They're found in the air we breathe, um, and so on and so forth. So I would be looking for... Um, opportunities to really clean up a person's environment in terms of the chemicals they're exposed to. There's been really good, good research on women exposed to renovations just throughout pregnancy. Oftentimes, you know, there's there's so much excitement about a, a baby coming, about preparing a nursery. There's painting and all of these things happening, but but some of the, the chemicals that come off of paint have been associated with, with problems and just renovations in general have. So so looking for, for where chemicals may be present in your life, cleaning that stuff up, um, before you conceive, before a woman conceives, and also staying away from that as, as much as she can through a pregnancy are, are, are things that I think can can really make a big difference.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's been a great show. Thank you for your time, Dr. Jenis. And everybody, we will Absolutely. talk to you next week on The Health Hub.